Well, welcome everyone to today's Golf Week Raider podcast. Um, I'm Jim Hansen. I'm a new member of the Golf Week Rating Program Advisory Board, and so I'll be doing a number of podcasts. And I'm an author myself. I was a history professor for, until I retired from Auburn University. Uh, I've been uh, a course rater for Golf Week since 1997, so I'm one of the early, early ones, uh, although we have an earlier one with us as a guest today. Uh, my podcasts are often going to be what we might call bookcasts because as an author myself, uh, I'm interested in, in uh, the literature of the golf course architecture field. And so we're really uh, lucky today to have uh, a good friend of mine, but uh, a very talented author and a very experienced uh, uh, evaluator of golf courses, Jonathan Cummings. And I'm going to hold up his book here. This is what we're going to be talking about. This is uh, published in 2020 by Post Hill Press. Uh, Jonathan Cummings' The Rating Game. So, Jonathan, welcome uh, to my first book cast here, and uh, good to see you. I don't think I've seen you or we've seen each other face-to-face. Maybe it's, I think, the Portugal-Spain uh, Raider retreat from a couple years back might have been the last time we saw one another. So tell, tell tell us, okay, the book, The Rating Game. What led you to write this book, Jonathan? Well, I, um, like many folks uh, in this rating world, I had a curiosity about the ratings and and course lists for years, and, and that's really what inspired the book. And, and it kind of went back to the 1990s where um, I was in my 40s, early 40s, and I was single and um, I traveled a lot. I love to travel. And I love to play golf. And so I com- you know, combined the two and, uh, and started amassing a number of golf courses. I also was an engineer and anal by nature. And, and uh, so I kept lists of everything. And um, so one thing led to another. I started keeping lists of golf courses and found myself in the early 90s with about 500. And, and for no reason whatsoever, I started writing travel letters um, annually to summarize my travels and the courses I've seen. I'd seen the past year, and the uh, and I actually even ranked them in the in the letter. And I sent it out unsolicited to 100 or so people in the golf industry, architects and writers and stuff like that. And I did that for about five years. And um, in those letters, I also interjected some history and something about ratings and some. Um, something interesting other than just my own observations, of course, ABC. And those interjections really became the genesis of the rating game um, over the years. And and uh, so that was the foundation. And I got to seriously finishing the thing much more recently. And the title of the book, uh, The Rating Game, uh, it's a great title, but explain why you chose that particular title and why you consider it a game. In what sense well, is it a game? I think it's a more tongue-in-cheek, the, you know, the lighter aspects of, of rating. People take it too seriously occasionally, and um, some folks probably would have preferred me to title it the rating quest or maybe the rating death march or something. But, <laughs> but anyway, the rating game to me just suggested amusement and fun, and, and that's what I wanted to convey with the title. Okay, and tell us who wrote your foreword and why that person was such a great choice for that contribution to your book. Well, Tommy Doak has, has been a friend of mine for 35 years. I knew him way back when. And so um, really there are three people that I, I would have taken any of the three of them, Ron Witten, Rand Morissette, or, 
or Tom Doak, and they all have either led rating panels before or are currently um, leading rating panels. And they'd be, all three of them would be great at writing forwards. Uh, Rand particularly is an, an incredibly good writer and, and it would have been nice, but they're, because of their current attachments to the Golf Digest for Ronnie and for uh, Golf Magazine to Rand, uh, there's a conflict of interest and so they couldn't do it. Um, and Doak had stepped down a number of years ago from Golf Magazine's panel. And, and so he's a ham and he loves to write. And so I took him out to dinner and twisted his arm. And he said, oh, all right, if you don't say anything bad about my golf courses. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> In the foreword, Tom Doak uses the phrase, quote, the gruesome details of how the ranking rankings are done. What did Tom mean by that phrase? And do you accept his use of the word gruesome? Oh, it's just, it, it's so Tom Doak, it's unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> and, curmudgeon, and, uh, and, and it's his way of con conveying that uh, um, that he never, he doesn't really agree with the details, the sausage making of a golf, of how these panels come up with these lists. Um, he's a big believer, um, many people are, including me, big believer that the best uh, rankings that you can possibly get is act asking Dr. Jim Hansen for his own personal list of, of rankings. And they don't, this is a subjective list, and there is nothing that can be more subjective than that. There's no math to it or anything. And Tom has always said that that's, to him, that's the most important list. He can argue directly uh, with that list, and there's no intermediate math step that he has to worry about. And that's what I think he means by the gruesome details. I can think of, of no one more qualified than you, John, to write this book. You're extremely well-traveled. You've played 1,600-plus courses in at least 36 countries. You're a professional engineer, highly trained and experienced in analysis of technical data and the principles of science and engineering and mathematics. Explain how your education and your work experience and your gener general understanding of the world, how it works made you the one and only person who really could have written this particular book. Oh, thanks, Jim. But I mean, there certainly all those others could have written this book, including you. Um, no, I think the combination of experiences and background is really quite unique, John. I think you're under, yeah. undervaluing that. Yeah, I, I do bring, I think I do bring to the table a, a, a technical aspect of probably there are people out there to have that too, but less people. Um, but there's certainly others that I'm surprised people like Ronnie Witten and Paul Radowski and Bob McCoy and these kind of, you know, mega raiders out there haven't written one of these books before. I, I really, I can't believe that. Uh, I think witness has always decided a retirement is going to do that. He might be a little pissed at me that I've done it before him, but um, I do believe there's a certain aspect uh, to the way the magazines do the ratings that have an analysis factor injected into it, rightly or wrongly, and you can't ignore this. And I was in the measurements business, and they are basically um, taking a numeric system and, and assigning it to rankings, golf course rankings, and manipulating those, averaging them, these numbers, and come throwing out some and, and questioning others and coming up with a um, uh, an intermediate step to get to those rankings. And when you get into the measurement world, now you're into science as well, you know, Jim, and, and there's a little policing or a little bit, you know, there's strict rules you have to apply and you can't ignore them. And that's what I hope 
in the book, I wanted uh, I could point out to people who read it that there is an analysis factor that can't be ignored. And if you're going to use analysis and not do Tom Doak's thing of just put a rank list and forget math, you have to abide by some rules. And hopefully that's what I bring to the table in the book is the analytical side of it. What did you hope to achieve with the book? What what impact did you think it, it could have and what impact do you think it, it has had? Well, uh, uh, you know, in education, uh, uh, it, I get a lot of response from people. A lot, a lot of people like math, frankly, and uh, and they well, many of them ignore the middle chapters in the math. They get through it and they glaze on over. But um, I've got a lot of response from folks that they really enjoyed the history part of it because they didn't know that stuff. And uh, and and the the personal evaluations in the back, um, you know, resonated with some. And I. Um, I think that's the feedback primarily I've gotten from folks. And ironically, most all the feedback I've gotten has have been from uh, individual raters, only 95% and very few from um, industry types and all. I, um, I, I don't know, that's just an aside. I found it a little interesting. I would expect architects would have screamed at me for things, but I haven't heard anything from almost any of them. You mentioned that that a lot of the reaction you've had has related to the history that, that you cover, and I think some folks have, have you found in what they've written and said to you that some folks are surprised to hear that there is such a really long history, rather rather long history to the whole ratings game. Um, uh, why was it important for you to to make that point that there was that history and then present the history in your book the way you do? Do you think the historical perspective about golf course ranking systems help us to understand what magazine sites are putting out now and they have been putting out as golf course rankings today? Uh, well, I'm I'm sure you can certainly tell us based on your books that gaining a historical perspective is often a good way to introduce a subject. Um, it's not the only way, of course, but uh, I don't know, it, as an engineer, to assemble facts and compile them in such a way is inherently satisfying to me. And so it was kind of a natural way to introduce a book. Uh, anybody can write about opinions, and certainly my opinions are later in the book. Um, but uh, as an engineer searching out these researching these facts and the evolution of a topic is something I'm more comfortable and familiar with. Yes, I think an historical perspective is beneficial in understanding the, the current rankings. Um, Golf Week and Golf Magazine have made fairly minor changes in their systems over the years, but that's not true with Golf Digest. They seem to be continually tweaking their system for the last 30 or 40 years and kind of implies to me that they're, they're never satisfied and they're ever correcting this stuff. So um, I don't know. I, it, the historical perspective seemed important to me, but there's certainly other ways to explain this. Uh, How has the genesis and history of the Golf Week Raider program differed or distinguished itself in, in, in the main ways from golf and from Golf Digest? Well, uh, as well you know, and most others do, they, each one of them's carved out a niche. Digest was the first in 66, and their niche was... Um, initially the 200 hardest golf course in the country, and they abandoned that, came up with a U.S. list, and they kind of launched the modern rating games. They're ones back in the 10s and 20s, but they're kind of informal. Golf Magazine, I think 72 or 73, uh, started um, 
George Pepper and uh, Ross, I guess, or George Pepper, um, started with an international list kind of in parallel to the uh, Golf Digest list. And Golf um, uh, Week came up in, in the mid-90s and came up with a, a U.S. list, but they bifurcated it to two eras. Um, and so they all carved out their own niche um, in this uh, um, in, in each one of their, their areas. Um, Golf Digest also employed a system of categories, a more complicated system where the, they carved down the ingredients of what they considered greatness, had the evaluators evaluate numerically those rating categories and combine them in such a way for an overall, where Golf, Di where Golf Magazine and Golf Week kind of, they said, ah, it's a one to 10 or one to 100 scale or A through E scale. And this scale is kind of going to represent a ranking, if you will, approximation. And so those two magazines haven't changed very much over the years where Digest, as I said, is, is under continual change, it seems. What about the difference in the Raider pools? Uh, the Raiders, the population that, that are used for each one of these uh, ranking systems, how do they differentiate and, and how is Golf Week unique in that regard? Well, um, my sense is you can view the three panels the three, this three, uh, in three ways. So the Golf Magazine panel is small. It's, it's never had more than 100 um, people in it. And these are golfing luminaries. I mean, you go down the list of who has been a raider for Golf Magazine. Gary Player, Palmer, Nicholas, Sneed, Wright, Stevenson, Jones Brothers, Weiskopf, and a number of others. I mean, these are the who's who's in golf, and and that's really the sense of that rating panel is it's a very lofty uh, group of luminaries. And as Dope once said, if they don't know what a top 100 is, who does? <laughs> um, golf Digest prides itself, on the other hand, of not employing uh, um, industry types. They, and I've never understood this clearly, they want low handicaps to evaluate all golf courses from the back tees. 90% of them can't play the back tees and you know they can't evaluate anything back there. They might as well not be playing. Go back there and take the card and drive around and observe and, and try to get a, a sense of that, uh, how, hard, how hard the golf course is from the tips. But um, that's the, the niche for digest is low handicaps, five or less, um, good cross-section and, and no one international there and no one in the industry. All of them are U.S. based. Um, our panel is, I view it more as, as the working class panel, if you will. Um, passionate golfers of all abilities, all forms, all walks of life. I mean, golf really doesn't uh, put many limits. Not like, like husband-wife teams, especially ones that can travel around. Um, it's more of a fraternity of like-minded folks. It's almost at times as the rating thing is secondary. And and this fraternity of folks going out and traveling about like you and I do often is, um, is almost more important. I'm going to tell you it's truth. That's 25 years of doing this. It's a huge personal component to me. Very satisfying. One of the big rewards of, uh, of golf week is meeting all these folks and going on these, uh, these, um, these trips we go on. So really that's the luminaries for, um, golf magazine, low handicaps for digest and everybody else for golf week. Now, this, I have to read this question because I, that I wrote out myself because it's a little, it's a little dense, I suppose. But how does your book definitely addresses this? How does something like an individual's evaluation of a golf course, as subjective as that is, 
get turned into something that when considered all together, thanks to what are hopefully optimum rater policies and optimum statistical methodologies, how do you move from the objectivity or the subjectivity of an individual evaluation to something that can come to stand as sensibly objective? What do you mean by sensibly objective? I wasn't well, sure. That's the, I, that was, I was careful in my phrasing of the words. I mean, I think how I feel about our golf week rankings is that they are, there is an element of object. There is an objectivity in there that's given to it by the way that the Raiders are, are set up and, and educated and, and uh, nurtured and how the statistical methodology that golf week uses uh, takes the, takes those individual numbers and does something I think sensible with them to come up with something that is maybe as close to an objective kind of a, evaluation of of the of rankings as possible now if you feel differently about it that's why i asked the question yeah um i think um one of your questions later on i kind of read and i um yeah. i think i'm probably interpreting objectivity different from you because i think okay. there are subjective and objective parts the objective subjective purely your opinion my opinion yeah, that's that's the purely subjective part and frankly, that's what we want to maximize. And the objective is the processing to get to that. And the processing, we want to diminish as much as possible and ideally remove it completely. And as the last chapter in the book goes in, I think I pose that the best um, rankings of all is to have Dr. Hansen do his own ranking, John Cummings do his, next person do his, and merge those laterally in their process to do that where there's no math involved at all. It's just now a composite ranked list of many ranked lists. And that's where I, uh, that would be the most purely subjective um, list you could get. And the objectivity would basically be removed. Does that answer what you? So the objectivity is removed, you said, or the subjectivity right. is removed. The subjectivity is maximized. The objectivity maximized. is removed. But you do write, you have a chapter, I mean, I didn't uh, skip over the middle sections of the, of the book, uh, which really, you know, that's inside baseball, uh, inside golf course ratings type of stuff. The chapter called The Measurement Game kind of opens that up. And you make the point in that chapter that it's vital in the measurement game not to introduce into, into um, not to introduce more subjectivity into the final result. I mean, that's almost a direct paraphrase, I think. Um, do I have that wrong? Um, uh, there's more objectivity into it, uh, uh, I hope. You know, show me where I've done that. I'm going to have to turn that. Okay, page. well, we can do that. Uh, I just, maybe I, my, my notes are confusing me, but it seemed to me like you're, what you're suggesting in the measurement game is that you're trying to use methodologies that will, you know, that will come up with, that will result in I'll just leave objective and subjective maybe out of it, but you want you want to do is produce the most sensible, reliable results of the rankings that all these evaluators have done that you can possibly do, and that you're trying to come up with the best statistical methods to to let that data come forth. Or okay. am I misunderstanding? Okay, well, well, maybe maybe we're crossing one or another, but um, in the the, in the measurement game, I say, if you're going to make a measurement, you're going to have to abide by rules. And here are some of the common rules you have to address. You have to determine resolution. You have to get into biases. You have to get into sample sizes. And um, these things are very common to any kind of measurement, not just this. And 
one needs to police those things or look at them carefully and reduce any kind of air, numeric air that's injected into that final product. But that's still all is the measurement game. When I was talking previously about subjective and objective, I like to throw it all away. You know, the whole measurement chapter you get rid of and say, we're not making a measurement, we're asking opinions purely, and we're measuring opinions and we're combining opinions. Because in the end of the game, or end of the day, all three magazines publish ranked lists. They don't care about ratings. Act the ratings are unnecessary step, um, unnecessary but required step because they they really don't know how to merge lists, and that's one of the. Well, I've got lots, as you know, I've got lots of questions that maybe can, can we, we can work through my my confusion over this. Uh, not that the book's all confusion, but it's 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 uh, it's it, there's a lot to uh, address in that chapter. You mentioned the word bias. And, and I, you know, there's bias in the mathematical sense of the word, and then there's bias in kind of the everyday sense of the word, you know, I, I think, uh, not a technical bias, but if someone's biased this way or biased that way, it's not necessarily a mathematical uh, term. Um, what are the major biases in the more general sense that concern you the most as they feed, I'll say, feed the objectivity that's, that's most evident in the ratings? I mean, I, I, examples, are Raiders biased by how well they play on a given day? Are Raiders biased by weather, whether they have good or bad weather on the day they play and rate a course? Are Raiders biased by whether they're playing an easily accessible public course or a very hard to get on private course? Are Raiders biased by whether they are receiving a complimentary round or not? Do you consider those biases? And if so, how do those? How do you deal with those in the in the measurement game? Well, all you list and all you just said are biases, and uh, there are others, uh, scaling bias. Um, um, I never give 10 to anything, you hear Raiders say. You know, he's generating his own scale now, and he's, he's ignoring the, the magazine scale. That's an inherent bias. Era bias. Some folks, you know, all good architects are dead, <laughs> and, and I vote <laughs> Right. And so they, they, you know, a Tillingus is Ross get ten and Fazio gets two, and it, those are biases. Uh, Fazio builds junk and CC builds nothing but ten. That's a modern architectural bias. Um, I mean, you get the idea. And the important thing, these, and frankly, almost any bias is pretty damn easy to find, to 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 identify and to control. People might not like. The fact that we control it, uh, I'm not speaking for Golf Week, I don't believe they do control it, I don't, but it's very easy for me to plot your numbers. And if I see a blip for Ross courses like that, I don't even need to see it. I can write an algorithm that would would, um, would mark that and tell me and warn me of that. Literally all the biases you say I could, are easily identified. Now, what do you do about it? You do um, about it, yeah. Yeah, you can do, there are only really two things you can do. You can provide education, tell the person that, hey, by the way, you seem to really like Ross course. Every time you see one, it's a 10 like that. Oh my gosh, I, I didn't realize that. I'll be more careful. Or, you know, I, I, I meant it that way. And, and, and you can actually correct their numbers. You can actually believe her. Well, you understand you can multiply the inverse of that and white noise there, um, the numbers, so it's brought down to a reasonable amount, or you can kick them off the panel, <laughs> you know, they're really, but as far as correcting it, identifying it's easy, and correcting it, literally all those biases you say, you, write, you look at the time history of a golf course, 
And if uh, all of a sudden in 2010, the ratings go way on up, that's a scratch your head and you say, why did that happen? Renovation. Um, somebody, we'll talk about this a little later, but somebody went there who loved the golf course, who was a luminary and touted it and wrote big articles about it. And everybody went rushing out there and gave it high ratings. I mean, these things happen. Yeah. So, but are you saying that through the review and policing of the data that come, the ratings that come in to Golf Week, when they're looked at, that you do in fact check that bias, not just check it in the sense of seeing that it's there, but you do some things to actually um, eliminate it or diminish it or alleviate it. I mean, do you do that or do you just leave it, leave it where it is? Oh. Yeah. I don't believe any magazine does anything about it, but the ability to do it is easy. If if we have course ABC and it's a nice little bell curve, a Gaussian distribution around a rating number of 5.5 like this, and some clown gives it a three and a half, which is two standard deviations off the norm or something like that, you can add that three and a half back in on anything that he does if you wanted to address it that way. And it's done in statistics in some cases. It may not be wise to do it in the rating game like that. I think educating the guy, um, guy or gal or something is a far more, a far better approach. But um, it, fixing these things, identifying fixing them is child's play. Okay. Oh, numbers. You move to another, another chapter that it seems to me really central to what your book does and what it argues. There's a, a very important chapter entitled Categories or Not. And let me begin by saying that I, I definitely pay attention to the categories that Golf Week has set forward for rating, rating courses and what readers should look at. But basically, after playing a new course, what I do is insert the course into my own one through 500 or whatever the number is now for me, uh, insert that into my ranking list so I can put it into and I give it then an overall evaluation. In other words, I don't just tally, I don't look at the individual categories and give numbers for each category, add them up, and then say that's my overall evaluation. I, I don't think that's what you're suggesting should be done when you talk about categories, uh, but am I, am I doing it the right way or am I doing it the wrong way or is there not a right or wrong <laughs> way to do it? But tell us about categories and why some systems use them more than in other in ways that are different than the way Golf Week suggests to use them? Well, uh, it's a whole different story. If you're talking digest, if you're talking just golf week, you're doing it correctly, Jim. I mean, it should stimulate architectural thought to you. It should, um, it should give you a little more depth when you think about an overall rating that you give. It should provide you potentially comments to put in your comments section when you rate a golf course. And, and also, when you have conversations and someone challenges, oh, why the hell did you like that golf course? I mean, you can come back with some uh, some substance, some meat on the bone, if you will. Um, digest a whole different thing. I'm not sure if we can go into that or should go sure. on that. Sure. But um, a good golf league grader thinks about categories not as individual scores to assign, but as tools. And uh, Give a couple of examples of our categories. Well, uh Conditioning, I mean, it's a, a category that's in Digest 2. Um, um, the collection of par threes, fours, and fives, um, walk in the park. Um, these, I've never, ever been comfortable giving grades to this. In fact, I personally do it somewhat cavalierly because, you know, it really, those numbers aren't being averaged. They're not being processed. They're just more 
in, in cases of ties or questions or stuff, that golf we can go in and look at your rating and and get a little bit better idea of what's going on in your thought process. Um, I, um, I, I some of these categories I can't imagine how to put a number to. And some you have to study and just haven't got time to do that when you go see one a golf course just once and move on. It's um, the, the history of the design. What was Brad Klein thinking about when he came up with that one? <laughs> you know, it's something to go to a library and research this. I I don't know. Well, let, let me, I, through my years as a Raider and my conversations on the 19th hole with other Raiders and being at Raider retreats, Am I wrong in thinking that there are a lot of our fellow Raiders who actually do do it by category, that they do assign numbers to the category, categories, add them up, and that's their overall rating? Am I wrong in thinking that's that's? I sure hope so. I my sense is no that it, those people would be identified and addressed quickly. I hope you're wrong because uh, that is I do the, too. <laughs> the, that's the wrong use of this program uh, program and. Maybe the ambassadors ought to put out uh, emails reminding folks of that, that that's the incorrect use. If they're doing that, they're doing, they're making it up on their own because I know of no guidance anywhere written ever in golf like that instructs them to combine these uh, categories like digest and sum overall. And I don't know how you do it. You average them? What do you do? Yeah, I suppose that's how you do it. Yeah. But you see, when I did, see, see I, I was, when I first started, I was making a lot of, I mean, I had Brad, I don't think it was, I had you necessarily, but Brad came back to me early on, Brad Klein, saying, Jim, your numbers are, you know, a little askew here. They're not quite, so you might want to think about that. And and that, and I really appreciated that. But I, when I first started, I was actually giving numbers to each one of the categories, adding them up. But I almost instantly saw when I, when I so I, okay, so I had a course that ended up based on that system at 6.75 and I had another one at 6.4. Well, when I looked at the two courses, I said, I like the 6.4 course a heck of a lot more than I like the 6.75. There's something wrong with these numbers. I can't just add up these numbers and come to my evaluation. I've got to look at it organic. I mean, sure, let's look at the rate at the categories, but I can't let them rule the day. I can't let them just be, you know, components of what I'm adding. So I ended up just ended up putting my list of courses together of a ranked list from my the very best down the list. And when I get a new course, I look at my list and I think, well, this one probably I would slot in about right here, you know. And that means I should give it, you know, I should give it a six point five five or something like that. But I was doing it by category for a while, and like I said, I I, I think. It is probably a good idea that the ambassadors raise this as an issue because if we find out that they're not, no one's doing it that way, that'd be great. But I, I do fear that it's that some, some many are doing it that way. So well, I, I think I personally wish everybody did the way you just said is to to uh, to have their own spreadsheets and continue to look at them and sort them and don't ignore the numbers and just say yeah. a deck of cards. Take the new course you just played. Where in this debt, Pine Valley? Go. And and the dog. But you do end up having to give them a, give it a number. I mean, that's that's a sensible way of giving it a number. But but the number once you rank those things, those numbers come out of the your deck of cards. Right. And so you move backwards instead of thinking one to ten rating, and then um, you get rankings out of it. Think of ranking it first, like you just suggested, and the numbers come out of the rankings. 
Well, I, I love the de deck of cards metaphor. I mean, I think that really makes it very, very, very tangible. Um, leave, staying on the topic of categories for a second, in your chapter on categories, you discuss correlation between individual categories and a person's overall rating of a golf course. What is going on in, the, in this issue of correlation? And how would you describe the Golf Week ratings panel use of, cat, you know, of, I mean, what do you see about correlation in the data that you've seen over the years? Um, well, zero in Golf Week. This was completely a Golf Digest argument. Yeah. Digest uses these categories. The rest of uh, Golf Week does not use them. They, but um, correlation in signal processing and math has a very strict meaning, and has um, and it's used and um, basic to relay one thing to another and how two things are related, the more related they are, the more correlated. And it happens to be a scalar that's, that, that ranges from minus one to one or minus 100% to 100%. Let's forget the negative part, but the correlations that we use go from zero to 100%. And correlation means simply that one um, variable compared to another variable in a 100% correlated environment, they move up and down together. They can be scaled different like this, but they're in lockstep together. If they're 50% correlated, when one goes up, this one goes up and kind of follows a little bit like this. In zero correlated, this one moves and the other one is completely stationary. So there's zero relationship between the two. I made the case for Ron Witten primarily in that chapter. And, and my conclusion in the end is I didn't think the categories would work at all is for a category to be useful, it's got to be, among other things, uh, it's got to be very highly correlated to the end product. Um, if it's uncorrelated, it's not only not useful, it actually is misleading and adds noise into um, the, the actual determining the result. So if I give, if I independently told the digest readers to rate their seven categories and give an overall, I would look at how each one of those categories moves with the overall and be able to relate those. Ones that are not related are detrimental to finding the solution. They're not only not beneficial, they can be very detrimental if they're lowly correlated, 60, 70, 40, 50% like that. Um, so in our case, using rating categories, as we discussed, you gain insight on, the, on, on just the components of architecture, and I think that's the better way to use it. But the whole chapter on, uh, or the whole thrust on correlation says you can't, you can't use uh, you can't use categories unless they're correlated with the end result and proven to be correlated. And there was a little experiment that I actually ran with my own ratings in there. And then I also, I know you might have been one of them. I don't know. I had ten golf week graders in the nineteen in ninety seven ninety eight that. I don't know, I had 2,100 ratings that Klein let me have, and I just played around with those and looked how correlated those, and those are in the book. Um, trying to prove with data, as opposed to just pulling out of my butt there, that uh, that, um, that there truly is an importance to correlation. And some of the things I found that were correlated and uncorrelated were kind of interesting. I, the walk in the park thing was poorly correlated, as it turned out. Um, things like beauty. Um, I came up some of my own categories to natural setting. We're very correlated. And apparently these things, the end result, if you see a beautiful golf course, you're most likely going to give it a good rating. And those are correlations. 
did I ramble on far enough there? Well, that, that, that leads me to my next question. You talk in this part of the book about, uh, in, in terms of the ingredients of an evaluation, uh, course evaluation, you talk about emotional, uh, emotional ingredients and intellectual ingredients. Something like beauty or the aesthetics of a golf course, is that an emotional ingredient? Uh, and if so, are you saying that emotional ingredients are even stronger than intellectual ingredients in, in most Raiders evaluations, or, or are you not saying that? Now, um, maybe I didn't convey this well, but um, the, in this category game, um, if you look back in, in the beginning chapters in the history, um, there are dozens of categories that have been proposed to how to break down a golf course. Um, and what I tried to do is, I don't want to look at an individual category like that and argue forever with someone, whether it's valid, where it's correlated, where it's like that. I'm just going to look at, there are two Uber um, um, categories. One on the emotional that speaks to your heart when you see a golf course, and one are the, and the other is the intellectual speaks to your brain when you see it. The emotional ones are beauty, order, um, natural setting, uh, color, delineations. They speak to your heart, your emotional side like that. And that's a, that's a pleasing aspect of evaluating a golf course. That's part of the, the emotional components. And the intellectual, as well you know, is the, is you get to a golf course, you, you weigh the if-thens, the cause and effects, the risk-rewards, the distance, slopes, angles, the, cal the wind calculations that you make. These, these are intellectual. I think the best golf courses out there maximize the emotional components, however you want to define them, and the intellectual components to come up with the, the great golf courses. And that's kind of my thrust in that chapter. Okay, good. What, what then is your, you have, you used the phrase personal perspective near the end of the book. What then is your personal perspective on what makes not just a great golf hole, but a great overall golf course? Uh, understanding that even a mediocre golf course can have a great hole or two in its layout. Is it what you've just said? It's, it's, it's when you have high levels of both emotional ingredients and intellectual ingredients and they mesh really beautifully, the two, that's when you know you've got a great golf course. Yeah, um, I restated that in way. Those were categories. I kind of I lumped everything to general categories, but this perspective I lumped, uh, or I, uh, I, I, if I remember correctly, I kind of gave four areas that were personal things that, if they're maximized, they uh, it represented a good golf course. Golf, good golf courses to me keep my focus. I'm not distracted. Um, I'm fascinated. I'm and very great courses riveted to it. They stimulate thoughts. I, I, um, I come around, I, I see a problem in front of me, and I, I decide how I'm going to address this problem. Um, and gosh, I forgot the, the, the third one. The fourth one is that this is all integrate, or the, integrated all into one product. I have to look it up in the book. I've forgotten. All integrated into one product um, uh, overall. But those four things in the book in chapter five or six, whatever it is, um, really is my perspective, personal perspective of what stimulates me to generate my own good ranking or good score for a golf course. Okay. This maybe gets at some things that you've already mentioned, but maybe it'll get some further elaboration. Um, 
D describe the ideal golf week course reader. Now, I know the word ideal is going to be you know, troubling right from the start, but and associated with that, do you, you, you clearly you've, you made it you made it clear in the book and what you said that you don't need necessarily to be a strong player unless you define strong in certain ways to be a course reader. Uh, I mean, couldn't you be a scratch golfer like the ones the Golf Digest uses uh, and still be a terrible golf course raider? I mean, being a good player has really almost nothing to do with being a good, a good, I mean, or not. I mean, if you're a good golfer, you would think he could handle the, the intellectual aspects of the game in particular. You've got some mastery of those or some command of those, but I mean, can't you be a really darn good golfer and a terrible golf course raider? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, um, no, I, the, I think you've asked it later, but the components of uh, what I think of a very good golf week grader um, start from um, making the first phone call to a golf club. I mean, you're, you're courteous to the host club. Um, you're, you're not demanding uh, of the club. When you get there, um, you have no your objective. You have some little background. Hopefully, you've, you've done a little research and know a little bit about the club, at least who the architect was, and, and some basic facts. And, and you go with no perceived notions, your objective. Um, I believe good golf raiders have seen a large, they have to see a large cross-section of golf courses because in the end, they're, what they're really doing is ranking. And without seeing a cross-section, I don't care how good a golfer or bad a golfer you are, it's hard to do that. Um, a good golf week raider, I hopefully, has read a little. He doesn't have to read thousands of books on golf, but there are a few pretty important books out there that, that, um, that are, are worth reading and really important reads, I think. Um, Self-monitoring, like you suggested, your own personal list of rankings. Um, uh, I think they're compare his rankings to the various lists, not just Golf Week, but Digest and, and um, local lists that come up with and, and not in the trying to adjust his rankings to fit others. It's just to see things that differ and ask himself why and see if there's an explanation. Um, and, you know, actively participate, a good Golf Week rater actively participates, participates in the rating process. In Golf Week's case, it's attend these outings and stuff. Um, there are plenty, there are a number of golf week graders that do not, and they usually get dismissed, but some stay on as legacy folks forever. And um, I think these things are meaningful and helpful to become a better raider, these outings, and uh, and it should be championed uh, by golf week. And, and I'm all for them insisting on raiders occasionally show up to these things. Yeah. Well, certainly I'm not asking you to name any names, but you've said, you've made, could you give from your own experiences, Tell us a couple of things, at least, that Golf Week creators have done that are just no-nos, that are just, you know, that, <laughs> that are just going to get you cut cut off the list as soon as we, as soon as the, you know, the people running the program know about it. I'm, I mean, that happens, unfortunately. Uh, you know, we've got a good review process to select raiders, but raiders can do, have done some silly things, some stupid things over the years. Do you have a few from your memory bank that to mention well I, because brad's no longer the director I mean, <laughs> um he was partying and i heard from him on a number of these yeah we had people abuse the system horrendously we had one raider in the north who um uh who was a friend of an architect who's building a course in Co costa rica and um this guy wanted 
some raiders. He promised to get a few. They got on a personal jet and went down there and raided this golf course. What we were doing outside the United States and came back. And, <laughs> and so I mean, he just blew smoke up this guy's butt to the point where it was embarrassing. And he got dismissed from the panel. And we, you know, it's abuse, really. It's it's being demanding. Um, oh, I never pay for my round. You, know, I get comped wherever I go. I have to get here on my own. And and the demands like that, uh, those are discolor the the vast majority of the raiders and golfing that are um, are highly curious about this and considerate and 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 do the right thing and go out there and um, are low signature to these golf courses, if you will. I want my foursome. First tea time Saturday morning, you know, that's not what you're supposed to do. And um, no, I mean, you, anybody who knows the rating game can come up with a, a million personalities that probably um, are not real good. I don't, I don't have a lot of specific examples for you about people who've, who've crossed the line, but those are a few that I've heard of and I'm sure there are many others. Let, let me, uh, this is kind of on a different tract. Uh, but consider this hypothetical situation. A new, you have a new raider, and we have new raiders every year. A new raider submits his or her first group of course ratings, and the rating numbers are real outliers. They're, they're off the mark. Uh, what exactly is way off the mark, and how does Golf Week handle this situation without alienating or antagonizing the new course raider? Uh, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't even the new raider believe that his or her opinion or judgment is what Golf Week is after? And then if Golf Week just won consensus data, it wouldn't even need his or her rating. Uh, how, how do you handle that kind of situation? How, how should it be handled? Well, um, unusually high and low ratings must be addressed in a similar way statisticians adjust about any scientific data. Um, there's nothing bad to this person, but I mean, the last thing I want is the FDA saying, oh, let's just ignore those weird outliers in the COVID vaccine data. Right, you exactly. Know, frankly, I'll say, no, thank you, <laughs> next vaccine. But I mean, this is done and there's great science, there's peer review and great scientific um, justification and background for this. Mostly, a raider need not feel disenfranchised. Um, uh, you know, mostly he's just made a mistake and, uh, and you know, he's just misinterpreted the scales that we use and a phone call or an ambassador reaching out to him and it's all corrected in the vast majority. Now, some folks, you know, they, they may not uh, want to change their ways and that's, that has to be addressed by management in a different way, but I don't think that's common. I think that's quite rare. Um, I, I don't believe that uh, I'm almost sure the golf league doesn't have a current system of systematically addressing outliers, but they should, and it's not hard to do. Um, but it's it's a magazine, it's a publication, it's not a scientific uh, board, and so they they're in the business of publishing lists, and that's where they make advertisement, and and that's the important thing for them. Uh, but so is are you another way of uh, I, I just is if I said it this way, how would you respond? Too much subjectivity in an, evalu in an individual evaluation will stand out like a sore thumb and needs to be policed. I mean, is there such a thing as too much subjectivity, too much 
eccentricity in a in an individual's opinion about a golf course. I mean, you could have somebody that goes to St. Andrews and absolutely hates the old course, right? I mean, a lot of Sam, Sam Snead, of course, according to the story, the first time he saw St. Andrews, he thought, you know, this place is terrible. Yep. You know, I don't I don't know if his opinion changed or not. I assume it did after he played it. But I mean, how far can I mean, is it really isn't there a way within the statistical methodology to let just let the subjectivity go and just it, it just gets canceled out through everything else? Uh, look, subjectivity, again, I'm not sure we're saying the right thing. Subjectivity is opinion. Um, if your opinion varies all over the map, yeah. um, that's an issue um, because most people, I can tell you from the database, most people's opinions tend to cluster in a nice little bell curve. Some are fatter, some are narrower, but you know, you go out and see a 5.5 and I'm gonna see it and I'm gonna give it a six and someone else a five. You know, these are all natural clusters of where uh, experienced people probably see this golf course. If a 10 came out or a one came out, that's a big red flag, why? And um, that's not subjectivity that often is bias or even a mistake. He forgot to, he misentered the number and hit submit. You know, that happens plenty of times in the, the, with the 100,000 votes the coffee has in the database. Um, so I, um, I'm not sure if subjectivity was the right word, but it's, uh, does that explain it? Or? Yeah, yeah, it does. Let, let's say a, a little something about sample size, because that comes into play in some important ways. And you've, you've recommended that a, that are kind of a minimum decent sample size for golf week or any rate ranking system is 30, 30, uh, 30 different evaluations. I, do I have that right? Yes. Uh, how did you come to that? And, and how does that really affect things? I mean, obviously if you have a new course, the, the new course and, you know, to get a rating, you need to get 30 raters over that course to do it before you publish anything about it. So how, how, how did you arrive at the 30? Well, I, um, it's very common for many years, statisticians consider low populations 30 and less. In fact, they actually have adjustments when determining mean, standard deviation, the higher orders, variance, kurtosis, skew, and all the others. They actually have to divide by a different number, n minus one, if you want to be math mathematical about it, to come up with those statistics for anything less than 30. And so someone arbitrarily said, ah, we've converged on a pretty stable um, uh, Gaussian distribution for more than 30 votes. So, um, so what you were saying with outliers or subjectivity before, if I had less than 30 votes for a golf courses, it's very sensitive to an outlier, extremely sensitive. In fact, you can change the rankings of a golf course by tens of places by just one vote. Now, if you have 200 votes like abandoned dunes or 300 votes like that, and you throw in an outlier, sure, it's going to have barely any effect at all. Doesn't mean it shouldn't be addressed. But the um, the sample sizes are uh, more and more sensitive for small populations, and you have to to worry about it. Generally, new courses because the top 100, top 200 um, classic and modern courses that golfing tracks. Uh, my guess is their statistics are way up there. There are plenty of people who've seen almost all of them. Maybe not so many of the classical in the in the second 200, but still, the under 30s are going to be the exception rather than the norm. And probably most new courses. 
But when you say that when you have a small sample size, even the 30 minimum, uh, that, that an outlier can really mess up that evaluation. Can you, I mean, don't, don't you mathematically have the option of kind of doing the Olympic judging, uh, you know, where the Pol where the East German judge, as we always said back in the old days, when you, you, you basically drop the high and drop the low or something like that, isn't that an option? And then you just let, let those aberrant judges do their thing and then you just cancel them out by not using them. You know, that's a, as you well know, as a scientist, that's a very, very common practice. Drop the if you have lots of them, you drop more than one. You drop the the low five and the high five if you have a couple hundred that you can play with. Or um, that's a little harder to write an algorithm for that. Um, what's much easier is use a little use a little library function and compute a standard deviation or two standard deviation and say I'm not going to include that in the average. Anything outside of that. And Does so, Golf Week do that? Does Golf Week do that? They hope to, but they do not. But then in that way, you know, you're basically, you're not zeroing anybody's votes. You're just using votes, as you just said, that are more well-behaved to come up with the averages, which goes into the rankings. You wrote in late in the book, you said, as you read a course, don't lose sight of the fact that there is no strict right or wrong. How does that play into how we're talking about this? I mean, in a sense, I mean, we, I want to say there are some right, there are some wrongs that can be done. <laughs> I mean, when you got you know when you got somebody that ranks something a ten and, and it's really a four, isn't that wrong? I mean, and so I mean, are you do you do you stand by that there's no strict right or wrong? Oh, I, uh, Jim, I'm probably being cavalier in my English there. So of course there, there there are disastrous wrongs you can do, and those ones we just cited. Uh, um, could be one. I, I meant that I, I was trying to say be flexible, and, and this isn't a rigid process that we're talking about. In um, um, the end of the day, we're asking for your opinion on something, and and you know not everybody's opinion is is derived from the same set of parameters, and uh, um, that's what I meant by flexibility. Um, so. Um. In your chapter on the perfect rater, you discuss grade creep and the splash effect. Can you define what those two terms are? Uh -huh. Grade it's, creep and splash effect. Um, I did not come up with these. These grade creep was, was written about years and years ago, maybe from Digest. But, As a college um, professor, I'm I'm pretty acquainted with it, but I'd like to hear what you say about it. Yeah. Well, grade creep is a measure of rating stability over time. Um, there's a phenomena, uh, phenomenon where new raters that have not seen very many courses, um, especially not seen very many better courses, they, they're exuberant and they go off the field and everything's a 10. <laughs> they just throw 10s on the public course up the road and were they to see Pine Valley, they'd give it 100 if they possibly could. <laughs> but after time, uh, you start to observe that um, the averages over time of their scores tend to, not always, but tend to come down and stabilize um, asymptomically really at a level, and they stay there for basically ever. And the great creep is just a, um, is trying to address early exuberance to new raiders. Um, it's, uh, there's also, there's an opposite to that too, where there's actually great depression, if you will, that, that some folks just give things low grades until they realize 
um, uh, that they're running out of golf courses to see. And where are the tens out there? And they start to give higher scores and it starts to come up a little bit. That's far, far less uh, common than gray creep. But gray creep is very common and written about years ago. The splash effect is more a phenomenon of the internet, the media. Um, a course makes a debut and, and everybody's gaga about it. And Raiders, media folks rush out there. They write articles. They, they are all waving their hands. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And that affects Raiders. And Raiders read about this and they go out and see this. And they're, they're going to the first tee exuberant to begin with. And that may affect their ratings. And this is particularly true if you time history ratings and after a year or two when no one's writing about that course you see that the subsequent raters that go out and evaluate it um, it, it goes down in its ratings and stabilizes at some point so that's an initial splash effect that uh, that also I didn't invent this has been written about by others long before me yeah you also talk about herd mentality which is different than herd immunity <laughs> point that out but uh, the herd mentality how, how how much of a factor is that? Well, maybe not. Maybe herd immunity is being immune to be, of course, a proper score. <laughs> well, the problem is the splash effect, um, but can happen anytime, really, uh, not necessarily when the course first opens. Um, let's say an influential golf luminary writes or touts great things about a course, and, and some writers may be influenced by the opinion of this well-regarded luminary. Um, he just saw a course that opened 10 years ago, 20 years, 100 years ago or something, and it's all of a sudden being discovered. And the same kind of thing as the splash effect. People run out and see it. And the way to, to the analytical tools used to, uh, to monitor great creep, herd, and splash mentalities are very easy. You just plot the time histories. You see an envelope of, of, of ratings, and they fall within a max and min generally. And if you see a bump in that curve, you ask why. And if it's associated with um, with Brad Klein going out and saying that uh, course ABC, the Pete Dye Club, is the best course he's ever played in modern era, you know, others going to run out there and see it. And you can kind of associate the splat or the herd mentality um, with uh, Brad's going out there. Well, I, I could talk to you another two hours, but let me uh, be nice to you and, and take you to the conclusion concluding set of questions I have. Let's take a finish up by taking more of a macro look at the ratings game. And I asked you at the start why you chose your title for ratings game. Uh, can you comment on the way this is in fact a business? The ratings is a business. Uh, what what is the appeal what is the appeal to for this from a consumer side, from a consumer economy? Uh, and, uh, I mean, why are the magazines uh, and, and podcast or um, web websites, um, what do they find so helpful about getting involved with these things? What, what do you want to say about them, being, about this being a business? Well, sure, it's a business aspect. I mean, they're in the publishing world. If this didn't bring income in, they wouldn't even, they would just get rid of them all. And so... Uh, the magazines, especially Golf Week, have long run a successful travel component to the ratings on these outings. And so they uh, they kind of invented it for the rating. First people to do it, and, the, and they've run it very successfully. And in fact, their director now, Armin, is, uh, is basically doesn't come from the, from the architectural world. He comes from the uh, 
event planning world. Um, so that speaks volumes of how Gannett and the USA Today view his uh, function there, in my opinion. Um, Golf Week was the first to monetize the rating panel, charging raters an annual, field for a rate, an annual fee for a rating card. Um, Golf Digest soon followed and did the same thing. Um, some people complain about that, but, uh, but many folks uh, um, don't mind at all paying to have that rater card in their pocket. Uh, um, I, I sense there are far more praises than criticisms, but mostly the, the business side is, um, is they sell, these lists sell uh, advertisements. And um, you look at all three of the magazines have come up with some of the most outlandish lists. I mean, it's... <laughs> Um, the, the best of everything was the one I remember from Golf Digest. Uh, yeah. um, oh, there are others too. Uh, um, the best. Um, oh, God, uh, oh, I forgot the other one. I just laughed at so much. But I mean, um, you look at um, if you. I don't know if you get links um, online, uh, but I get links online, and they, every twice a week they come up with the best new 10 of something it's imaginative and it's it's very creative and i'm amused immensely by it and it's it's all done to sell a magazine or a magazine uh, um, advertising and that's the business aspect of the rating game yeah yeah um obviously ratings uh, are something of a hot button issue there's certain controversies uh, clearly to them um what this might be hard to generalize. Uh, I know it is, in fact. But what what would you have to say about the way course owners and course managers and golf course architects how they view course rankings? Uh, I mean, clearly, if they're at the top of the list, they're happy with it. Uh, if they're, but you know, what would you say about this as a hot button or controversial issue for the golf world? Well, I. Anybody who invests time and money into a project uh, wants to be and is proud about it wants to show it off. It's human nature and uh, on anything, not just golf courses. Um, but generally, what I see is the response to the rating world of the golf course industry is really from A to Z. Um, you get golf course owners that just they tout the rating panels, they befriend the, the directors. Uh, Trump and Klein is a great example of, of Klein being flown around by Trump, um, you know, trying to wine and dine him for uh, better ratings on his course. <laughs> but and, and then some on the other side, see some some industry types they yawn. I've never even thought one second about golf course rankings and uh, owners, managers, architects um, who helm panel directors on why the course was underranked by a particular magazine as a certain breeding animal and the other breeding animal for owners, managers, and architects are the ones that, that, that truly think about their product. And, and, um, they've got members, they've got, um, uh, um, clients that they're trying to, uh, service and, and that's what their, their concentration is not what a ranking panel is going to give it. I've actually, I think I said earlier, I've gotten very little feedback from anybody in the golf industry about the book. And that kind of, I was curious about that, that I would have expected more people to either like or not like it and give me criticism back. But I really see very, very little. Um, but I've received lots and lots from individuals, hundreds and hundreds. I mean, your books too, you've received, you know, tons and tons of responses. And, and I don't know what the proportion of, of positive to negative. I assume it's very highly 
mostly positive. Mine has also been highly positive, but very gratifying to see people I've never met send me emails with you know glowing praise about this and and uh, um, you know better than I do. It's the one time I've ever written a book. I probably never do it again, but um, you know it's it's very satisfying. Well, I think it should be required reading. Honestly, I'm I'm, I'm not being facetious about it. I think. I think that every Golf Week Raider, certainly every new Golf Week Raider, should be given a copy of your book. And I think there actually should be, you know, some special retreats or something with you as guest to talk about your book and to and with a group of golf raiders that have actually read the book, you know, to make a really worthwhile conversation. Because I think there are so many aspects of what you're doing that can will would improve the way we approach things. Let me just conclude with a couple more things um, about Golf Week specifically. Golf Week has a classic list for courses that are were designed before 1960 and a, a modern list post-1960 and after. What are the pluses and the minuses of this division or bifurcation? And will there ever come a time that They'll, you see that they'll need to adjust that division or maybe even trifurcate it, you know, to, to create another one. Uh, one thing that bothers me when I look at our modern list, I guess it's the modern list in particular, but it looks like courses from, well, from 1950 to 1990, like their, their significance and greatness has been diminished somewhat in the, in the lists. Uh, it seems like courses after 1990 and up to the present, you know, are, and I'm using 1990, maybe I could fine tune that date a bit back into the eighties, but it just seems to me, my own special, my own opinions are that there are a lot of great courses from the fifties, sixties and seventies that are just kind of, I don't know, because if it's herd mentality or great creep or what the factors are, but they don't, they don't do as well anymore. And, and so, I mean, when you look at the lists, classic and modern, what concerns you most about them? And going forward, are there ways of improving on that without making, you know, too many foolish extra divisions of the chronology? Well, I've never really thought. That's interesting. I haven't thought about that. Um, your question, uh, um, I, I've not just... I've not talked about that with anybody. Uh, there sure could be an argument for a third era. And I, I suggest a little bit different than you. I call it the minimalist era. Over the past decade or so, there's been yeah, some yeah. of a renaissance where architects are striving to create courses that look like they've been there 100 years. Right. And this is everybody now. This is They're all doing this. Lay of land courses, thin on flashy support components, and strong and natural integration strategy and tactical playing and walking components. Um, call it an anti-fazio era, just kidding, Tom, but <laughs> um, but really it is almost back to the roots era. Maybe it should be called classical two and champion, of course is championed by designers like Tommy Doak and Crenshaw Coeur Hans and others. And these courses are clearly distinguishable from the highly manufactured courses of the modern age. Um, like you say, Jim, uh, 19, well, we have 60 to 90 or 2000, the ones with Basio and Nicholas Jones Brothers and others do, where they they basically get a blank slate and, and they don't want anything classical about it at all. They're going to make a 
thrilling visual and a murderously hard golf course and unwalkable carts. You know, they don't care about. So maybe there is an argument. For but there, there are some great courses in the, in that era that I think they're they're how good they are has been minimized by how much affection we've developed for this classic two era. You know that they keep they keep peering on the list, and that means that the courses from the earlier decades have to go. And I, and there are some great courses. Uh, I mean, of course, I wrote. Robert Trent Jones Sr.'s biography, and it's not because I he's my favorite golf course architect. I just, it's just an incredible story to, to tell him and his, his two sons. But I do think there are some courses that, that Jones Sr. did, you know, that 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 sort of have been forgotten about in a way. Everything from you know from uh, from Point of Woods to the Dunes Club to Old Worson. I mean, there's a lot of great courses from that era that are kind of like, well, you know, they don't show up on the lists anymore. And I think if we did trifurcate and create a classic two period, there would be more, you know, I don't know. That's, it's just, I, I do think that, that we, there are, um, there are fashionable, you know, an era becomes fashionable, new courses of a type become fashionable and the minimalist architecture has lots of, I mean, there are good reasons to like that, not just for the golf, but for the environment as well. And so I just wondered if you felt that at some point in time, I mean, I know that from teaching history, you know, there was a time when I was, in, when I was in graduate school, history courses, world history courses didn't get much beyond World War II. It was like, you know, that's, that's as close to the present as we need to go, right? <laughs> you know, get it up to World War II. Well, it's now 2021 and you can't stop your world history courses at the end of World War II anymore. I mean, you gotta at least get into the 21st century. And so, Time moves on, and it seems to me like the lists maybe need to move on and and become a little more sophisticated chronologically than what we've what we've had them so far. But now take that up with the uh, with the yeah. panel of Golf Week with Tom Dunn and Law. That's an interesting thought. I'd like to know what their thoughts were. And and by the way, one last one. Every word of difficult par. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. One, one more. One thing that Golf Week is thinking about is producing a new list that's a world list, not international, although that could be a separate one, but a world list and using the data that we have on board right now to create it. Well, when I looked at that data, it seems to me very troubling because the, there is such a strong American bias in the data that in terms of though, if you had a world list of say the top 100 or the top 200 courses, two thirds of them are going to be American courses, and that just doesn't seem right to me. You know, I know when golf, I think it's Golf Magazine, it has a world list. It leaves American courses off because if you if you include the American courses, it just gets you know it just gets haywire. I think, but so Golf Week I think intends to have a world list that includes American courses that goes ahead and put past two thirds of them U.S. courses and then have an international list which excludes American golf courses. And I just not sure that's the right way to do it. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Um, I don't think you have that right. I think uh, um, I think the the golf magazine's list is America also. I think the top 100 world list is both. And you are right about Golf Week. In fact, I've talked to Armin very recently about it, and I'm sure you will too. They are trying to compile a, a Golf Week list, but it's rest of world, and it's not including the U.S. And the problem here is statistics. They just don't have. They have. Don't have uh, it. Yeah. 
they have 1,100 golf courses on the on the golf. There are 4,000 on the golf week battle. About 1,100 are international, and 3,900 are U.S. Of those 1,100, there a quarter of them don't have any uh, don't have one vote. And how in the world are you going to come up with any kind of meaningful list? Now, of course, they're out of the way places. They're probably never going to make any list anyway. But um, I think what Golf Week is, and you're going to have a part of this too, uh, is is considering doing is starting easy and publishing the top 30 or 40 modern and classic combined out rest of world outside United States list and year in, year out, expand on this as their statistics are built up. To me, scientifically, that's the only thing that could make sense that as you get numbers here uh, is to to do this slowly. It took, you know, I'm, I always think that, that Golf Magazine, even 40 years into doing an international list, is, is completely uh, on drugs. I mean, how in the world can they have enough statistics? They only have a ballot of 450 courses and 100 people. You can do the arithmetic of how these people have to run around and play all those golf courses. I mean, right. I, I don't see how they can have enough to make a, uh, they can do the top ones, but not anything else. But anyway, I think, and again, you guys are going to be involved in it. I think that Golf Week is, is suggesting, Armin's suggesting to do this correctly, is to go so in. It'll, and so it'll just, be a rest of the world list. Rest of the world. Not well, I'm perfectly fine with that. That's 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 the way I would I would want them to do it. I was maybe under a misapprehension or Maybe that's changed uh, in recent weeks, but uh, yeah, because otherwise, you know, as you're saying, the data. I mean, we've looked at it's overwhelmingly American in terms of the visitations that we've made. I mean, more and more over. I mean, we didn't even have an international list until, or an international rating program in, until about ten or twelve years ago, right? Golf week. You know, when then we started making a couple international trips a year. You know, and and that's those have been great trips. So we, we're building that database. Uh, so slowly but surely, we'll get you know, once COVID's over and we can travel again. Uh, well, Jonathan, this has been splendid and wonderful. And your book, The Rating Game, I, I highly recommend it, including the middle chapters. Uh, and uh, I've learned I learned a lot. I'm going to read it again and pick up on some of the things I might have gotten wrong the first the first time but it's a it's a great book and it's available on Amazon uh, I think maybe a five-star rating and certainly will get would get that from me and uh, thank you for doing it and I hope uh, I know we have a very ambitious 2021 schedule for golf week let's hope that most of those events take place and COVID doesn't stop them and and Raiders, I strongly encourage you, if you're on a Raider, Raider retreat and Jonathan Cummings is, is there with you, you need to buy him a scotch or two and, and talk to him about his – I didn't get to the point where – what his top ten courses are or anything like that, which uh, would be interesting. Uh, I, I agree with almost all of them in pretty much the order he has them, uh, with a couple of exceptions. But you, you have great conversation with Jonathan. Uh, and. Uh, Jonathan, just thank you very much for being part of this book cast. Thank you very much, Dr. Jim. Appreciate it very much. All right. Go go have a great uh, round of golf as soon as that weather in Florida warms up. All right, kiddo. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.